Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We wanted to uh, plug our Patreon uh, right at the beginning this time, uh, which we usually only do at the end. But if you are a listener of this podcast and you have been listening to it and you enjoy what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It would be a big help. (laughs) We would really appreciate your support. And we've added new um, bonus tiers um, to depending on which level you support at. So Abby, why don't you explain um, what we have to offer now? For people. Absolutely. So unfortunately, we don't have much to offer under 30 a month tier donors. But for $30 a month, Robbie and I will offer, you know, free watch codes for Gaza Fights for Freedom for a very heavy agenda and also custom packs of my artwork and custom Media Roots stickers that we've printed. Uh, Really, really amazing stickers, not only for Media Roots, but for Media Roots Radio specifically. Multiple colors. um, They're super high quality. So I, I put a lot of care into these little packages um, and, you know, pack them all myself and stuff like that. So I'd love to reward you guys for your support. Um, we totally understand the financial restrictions that people have. We know it's a really tough economy. So really any support that you can give is super appreciated. Um, and we really, really appreciate that. So thanks so much. We really couldn't be doing this at the level we are now without your support. And the way we have it set up on Patreon is per creation. But you can set it up so that you only donate one amount per month. And and you'll understand that once you actually go through the submission process. But um, if you want to donate $30 a month or per creation, you will receive a download code for both Abby's documentary film, Gaza Fight for Freedom, and my three-part documentary film, A Very Heavy Agenda. Go to patreon.com slash Radio. And thank you to everybody who's already donating and supporting us through Patreon. Um, You're amazing, guys. And if you have any comments or feedback at all, um, that's one of the things that's beneficial with Patreon is you can leave the comments there. And we read everything and respond to everything. Um, So it's a way to interface with us as well. And Robbie, we didn't actually get to talk about Gaza Fights for Freedom after you had really watched it. So I just wanted to see, you know, what what did you think about it? We don't have to spend too much time. I know that I really kind of go overboard talking about the movie every time we do a podcast, but just why don't you give your your initial thoughts and tell people why they should check it out? Well, I'll try to talk about it without crying at all because the movie is, <laughs> is so powerful. First, I'll say that I, I knew a little bit what to expect out of your style from watching Empire Files and um, working together with you for so long, Abby, but I was absolutely blown away by the emotional narrative in this movie that I just couldn't believe that just this footage, your narration, uh, the script that you wrote, um, the pacing of the movie, I mean, it's such an emotional ride um, that this movie, you know, if it wasn't such a controversial subject, if it wasn't something that's so taboo still to, to shed light on, um, this could be like an Oscar contending or some kind of, you know, uh, widely distributed film that you would see on Netflix or anywhere else. Like I was, so the, the quality, the production quality blew me away. Um, you guys really put your all into this. I mean, even just coming from an audio engineering perspective, the music, the sound mix, it was incredible. It was like, per, it was perfection. And, I mean, there was a part of the movie where I absolutely 
lost it. I mean, there, there's there, it's about maybe 40 minutes into the movie. And not to say that the beginning of the movie isn't emotional and powerful, but there is sort of this crescendo that the move, the pacing of the movie, you did such a beautiful job of pacing it out so that the actual footage from the march and sort of that zeroing in on that flashpoint event, it builds up to it. And once it does, it's fucking insane. And um, even wow. just the footage uh, and the way you edited things together before the march, I mean, the woman, women of Gaza showing all these people, you know, where you don't, you never even saw that in the mainstream media that it's not just these people, you know, mostly younger men going to this protest and, and, and masking up and, th- you know, slingshotting and throwing rocks. It's like every stripe of Palestinian you could possibly imagine, you know, old people, young women. It's incredible. I mean, and then, you know, and then this whole notion of like bringing, you know, oh, that's what happens when you bring your kids to the battlefield. Well, watch this fucking movie and see that every buddy in Palestinian culture was involved in this protest and it was sort of a family affair it was a powerful symbol mm-hmm. for what they were trying to do and 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 anybody who suggests that they were actually trying to like rush the fence and invade Israel they don't understand the symbolic nature of the, this whole event and i think that that's what your movie also beautifully shows in that little i think you said you added this after the fact um, mm-hmm. after your first screening with the the social media uh, posting by that guy and his poem i mean mm-hmm. that that part was absolutely incredible. It's hard to put into words. I mean, you know, people think they understand the conflict. I think I understand it. I think I've seen pretty much everything out there, but you haven't seen anything like this. And just for the footage alone, it's incredibly high quality footage. Um, you feel like you're inside the march. I mean, you're inside like the basically what feels like a war zone. GoPro cameras, however, the, however that you got that footage with your collaborators in in Palestinian territories, um, I don't know how they did it. I mean, I've never seen any footage like this of a, of a, an event like this. So I, I can't say wow. enough good things about it, Abby. Thank you so much. I, I want to cry listening to that. I'm going to transcribe your whole review and put it up online because it was really cool. Thank you, Ravi, for saying all of that. And kudos again to the videographers, um, Moaz Moaza and Asma Atia Hamad, who risked their lives to get that footage, and they did it with steady cams and um, slow motion. And they literally you know, 4K. did. I mean, they literally did they, risk yeah, their lives insane. because if you watch right. the movie, there are media being killed, there's medics being killed. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything. It, it's just such a sad, tragic thing. I mean, there, yeah, the risks that these people took to work with you on this project. Absolutely incredible. I, I would not risk my life like that. I can't imagine the courage that it takes. Well, after this movie, they'll definitely won't let you in Gaza, but you were already weren't allowed to go in originally <laughs> right. when you tried the first time. So I'm sure after this movie, you'll be pretty much banned for life. But goddamn, this shit needs to go out there to everyone, especially like even if you think you know everything that's going on, you're super conservative and pro-Israel. I feel like this movie is actually powerful enough to show you just the humanity of the Palestinian people, that it really does undo kind of decades of sort of Hasbara indoctrination, this dehumanization, just showing the human qualities. I mean, it sounds so basic mm-hmm. and so boilerplate to say that, but that's like something that, that is not done right now. Right. I mean, everybody right. is a human being. And regardless of what ideologies, what religions it's if you see the humanity of these people that are constantly demonized, it's just such a powerful 
thing to cut through it. And it doesn't even have to be done with words. And I think that that's part of what's so powerful about your movie is just the the whole portrait of Palestinian society. I, I'm, I'm kind of being redundant wow. now, but it's it's super, no, super I mean, powerful. No, I mean, you know that I could keep hearing that. I mean, one last thing that I'll say is that we actually had to redact the co-producer. I mean, the guy that I was on the phone with every single day for the last year until the movie was released, um, he did not want to have his name on it because he was so scared of retaliation from Israel. And he was saying, if I put my name on this movie, I can never leave. And I could see that. to not give someone credit, you know, for, for so what just heroic, incredible work. And, you know, you want to lift this person up to the same amount that I have been at the face of this movie. And it's just like emblematic of what the struggle is. And what does that, so what does that ultimately say? It's like we hear the mainstream media, you know, talk about these anonymous whistleblowers or whatever from these brutal, tyrannical countries but what does it say about Israel? If somebody who co-produced, in my opinion, what is the best film ever made, best documentary film ever made about <laughs> what's happening in, in Palestine, if, if the co-producer, a Palestinian, is afraid to put their name on it, what does that say about the Israeli government? It says that there's a real legitimate reason that people are afraid of them in the same way you'd be afraid of, like, the mafia. I mean, they will come right. hunt you down and punish you. You know, not to necessarily kill you, but they they will figure out a way to really fuck up your life if you're a political threat to Israel. I mean, it's pretty Absolutely. clear. Absolutely. Just in the sense that, you know, what's called the only democracy in the Middle East um, is preventing 5 million Palestinians, nearly 3 million Palestinians living in Gaza, 2.5 million Palestinians living in the West Bank, all of whose lives are completely dictated in every way by the Israeli military occupation. Let's get that straight. They are prevented from voting, you know, not to mention the discriminatory laws within 48 proper. So yeah, it's a segregated, it is just comical. It's, it's an mm -hmm. unequal society. It's not even, you know, segregation was supposed to be separate, but equal. Um, this isn't even that on paper. They can't vote. I mean, <laughs> These are actual basic facts about what's going on. It is a separate, segregated, and stifled society that is not allowed to vote. They're not given the same rights as Israelis. And when they do have their own elections, as you so beautifully point out in your movie, and I thought you really drove this point home uh, extremely effectively, that the Israeli government meddles in those elections, and they actually helped Hamas get elected. They wanted Hamas to get elected. Mm -hmm and win. Because if they did that, then it's easier for them to just paint Palestinians as hostiles. Like they are all now Hamas. They're all terrorists. It's just such a, it makes it their job so much easier to demonize and dehumanize these people. And, and it's really, really sad, but that's what's going on. And uh, you mentioned on a recent uh, podcast appearance we did that what is Netanyahu is actually trying to, he's openly announcing that he's trying to annex more of Gaza, which is something that he's been trying to do for a while, but they've been doing it with settlements sort of on the sneak, but this is an actual announcement for more annexation. Can you go into that a little bit? Cause I don't really know much about what's happening there. Sure. So, I mean, the elections are happening today. Um, it's between literally Trump and Trump. I mean, that that's the comparable symbolism that we're dealing with when it comes to the Israeli fascists that are in power. We're talking about just completely openly genocidal figures. It's between this guy named Gantz 
and essentially Netanyahu are the two main, you know, primary contenders. And, you know, Gantz is even potentially more fascist than Netanyahu. So Netanyahu continues to go further with his rhetoric, right? Because he just wants to, to say that, okay, he's going to do all of this stuff. So he's going to completely annex the entire West Bank. This is what we're told from the international community is what would be the second state, what would be the Palestinian state. Um, anyone who's seen that map of the dwindling territory understands that there is no second state to be had and there hasn't been since the Oslo process fell through because of settlements. This is like the most extreme measure possible. Um, and there is no left party in Israel that has a power in the remotest sense of the word. There's like maybe 16 seats in the Knesset and the Knesset I think has like 120, maybe more seats that are the Arab Israelis that do talk about, you know, we need to end the occupation and they're kind of in there. They were temporarily banned recently, but I guess that lifted the facade too much. So they're back in there, but they they have zero power. All of the parties that are the ruling coalition parties just mimic exactly what those Israelis on the street told me, which is that, you know, we need to ethnically cleanse everyone. We need to kill them all um, and we need to take their land. And it's unabashed. The fact that the U.S. media tiptoes around this issue and pretends like this is actually a democracy is fucking laughable. Again, what democracy in the world prevents like, you know, first of all, is maintaining a brutal military occupation and a siege of millions of people, but then just prevents wide swaths of people from voting. Today, they just blockaded all Palestinian neighborhoods and like barred them up. You know, of course, under the auspices, oh, well, they're going to commit terrorism. They're going to come and disrupt the elections. No, it's just a very visceral depiction of what apartheid really is. And it's time to drop the charade and it's time to accept that this is the reality. And, you know, as many people who may disagree with this within Israeli society, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough and it continues to get worse. Um, and that's why, you know, this movie, I hope, can be used as a tool to really broaden that BDS movement and, and push accountability for Israel. It's something that I really do think most people just accept the conventional wisdom about it and they don't seek out information themselves because you know not just your movie there are some other easy to watch things out there that really uh do a good job of unpacking this kind of stuff like i was just thinking while you're talking that the louis theroux um special uh extreme zionists like it, it you you have to see it for yourself just to see how brazen even just the israeli settlers are it's all about interviewing and going around and meeting all these Israeli settlers and how they think about Palestinians. I mean, it's it's extremely obvious that Louis Theroux didn't seek out, you know, just the most racist Israelis. All these people think Palestinians are basically animals. I mean, it's it's sort of just the common way of looking at it. And if you're going to go do be a settler in Israel, you really have to have just no compassion for the Palestinians around you. I mean, maybe there maybe there is such a thing as like some kind of activist settler who's trying to like do it as some kind of symbol to help Palestinians. I've never heard of such a thing. I mean, if such a thing exists, all the settlers are there to fuck with the Palestinians. And what did you say that I missed this where Netanyahu like staged some weird like Maduro? Oh, my God, Abby. The drone attack or whatever what happened i mean i hate to you know i i'm i'm sitting here on the last podcast complaining that jumping on saying everything is a false flag is is idiocy <laughs> but when i see shit like this man i can't help it but think that this was a false flag well let's just say let's call a spade a spade if the media is going to say the maduro incident where a drone dropped tried to drop c4 on him was a false flag and it was staged 
by his own government. You remember, Abby, that was what the media was basically insinuating. Oh, yeah. How is it how is it unfair to say the same thing about Netanyahu having to be whisked off stage like a little baby from a Gaza rocket attack? I mean, this actually there's a videotape you can go watch right now of baby Netanyahu, um, his bodyguards grabbing him and whisking him off the stage um, because apparently a Gaza rocket had gotten through the Iron Dome or something. Um, and I want you to take a look at what an Israel or a, Ga- a rocket from Gaza actually looks like and compare that to the Israeli <laughs> weaponry that we know exists. Just take a look at the, how, how they compare. I mean, these, these rockets are fired using like ground mortar systems, basically. They're not like guided missiles. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's pretty absurd, man. Um, well, thank you so much for that beautiful review of the movie. And um, we're taking the movie on a big tour. I'm leaving tomorrow and going all across the Southwest. And then we're going to the East Coast and then the South. Um, and Canada is going to be in the mix of that. So definitely check out uh, MediaRoots.org. Check out my social media. We're selling tickets. We just really hope to just keep the momentum and the energy and um, to have it be kind of a networking tool for people to get together and mobilize uh, for Palestinian rights. So, oh, and, and one really cool thing that happened actually is the leaders of British trade unions overwhelmingly passed a motion to boycott Israel. This consists of millions of people. I know that Britain has a lot better organized labor um, movement. So it was really encouraging to see kind of this unequivocal demand for Palestinian right to return from the trade unions over there. Yeah. And I think these little things are positive signs. Um, You know, like, you know, it might seem superficial, but even Sarah Silverman, you know, just making like Mm -hmm. one or two tweets saying, you know, stop murdering Palestinian protesters with live ammunition. Um, you know, in the middle of a bunch of other Hasbro she was putting out is still a positive sign that things are turning ever so slightly. I mean, even just Trump being so close to Netanyahu is slowly eroding away the the complete loyalty that has existed in this country towards Israel. It is it is doing damage to it. You know, I'm not saying that that's going to be uh, we're going to see that continue in the same direction. Another president could get in and try to help clean up Israel's image in a Obama-style way, you know, sort of whitewashing everything. I, I have a feeling that it's just going to it's going to keep dwindling. I mean, I'm hopeful that their sort of public facade um, will continue to erode. This is a perfect time to actually, if we don't mind, if we can get to 9-11 next and then get back to the Bolton firing. But I, I think it's an important segue because... You know, you've pointed out that Don Kagan was on TV advocating the invasion of Palestine on the morning of 9-11. So you had ideologues across the spectrum from political think tanks advocating not only to bomb Palestine and blaming Palestine for the 9-11 attacks, but also just subsequently conflating Palestinians with al-Qaeda you know, now with ISIS, you see that rhetoric coming from Netanyahu and other people who are just super right-wing figures. And I just can't actually fathom a people's being more dehumanized in the world, in a post-9-11 world other than Palestinians. And so it is really important to kind of link that together and, and see where are we at, you know, 19 years after 9-11, 18 yeah. years after 9-11. And I think we're there and and, and in some ways we are lucky I think 9-11 could have been crazier in the sense that it could have been blamed on Palestinians. And I dread to think what would have happened if somehow it pivoted towards some kind of Palestinian terrorist organization 
did this, I, in, in a sort of nightmarish vision, alternate reality, I feel like Palestine might not even exist at all now. Like, mm-hmm. that's how fucking crazy mm-hmm. the response would have been. I mean, it would have been genocide, like straight up, right. if you don't call Full what's scale. happening. Yeah. So just imagine the inflammatory rhetoric, you know, that these people were willing to put out. Donald Kagan, the patriarch of the Kagan family, Robert Kagan, Fred Kagan, some of those influential neocons in D.C., they were also trying to blame. There's a Media Roots episode we did, uh, which most people don't know about. This is something I'm proud of putting together because it's a thread from 9-11 I think most people have forgotten, similar to how most people have memory hold anthrax, is that on the day of 9-11, there were mainstream media stories coming out trying to blame Palestinians for the attacks. In fact, the very first claim of responsibility before bin Laden was even spoken on the news by anyone was from the DFLP, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Someone apparently called into a Saudi TV channel claiming to be a head of a Palestinian group that took responsibility for the attacks. And that went out on mainstream media in the United States. That's super inflammatory. And it could have stuck. And I think we're really lucky that it didn't, in a way. I mean, 9-11 could have been worse, like I'm saying. Um, We could have killed more people as a response. But yeah, I mean, the 9-11 anniversary, the 18th anniversary uh, just happened about a week ago. And... It's interesting to see where people are at on that. It seems that there's still, as you, I don't know if you saw my thread, Abby, there's still a shitload of animosity out there from people uh, towards anybody who still questions the attacks. There's a lot of animosity towards truthers. And funnily enough, a lot of that animosity seems to come from actual like mainstream writers and journalists who are like neocon leaning. It's not surprising, I guess, that 18 years later, people still are that emotional about things. I I understand that the Iraq war, one of the outcroppings of 9-11, killed so many more people. And the destruction we wage around the world makes the death toll on 9-11 seem minuscule in comparison. But I still think it's extremely important to be able to ask questions and be able to examine the event that led to all this stuff in the first place. And I don't think that's an American-centric or selfish point of view. I know some leftists have sort of tried to represent it that way, that if you focus too much on 9-11, you're focusing on only the deaths of Americans. But this is the event, the catalyzing event, that caused all these other things. So I just think that it's disingenuous to say that we shouldn't you know, keep examining it. Uh, look how long it took for the Kennedy assassination to sort of have the tab- taboo of that lifted, to be able to talk about that. I mean, it wasn't until... Pretty much Oliver Stone's JFK, that society, you know, American society started feeling more comfortable talking about this stuff openly. So, and that, you know, how long after the Kennedy assassination was that? Almost 30 years. Well, I honestly do think that the hijacking of conspiracy culture by the right wing has made it so difficult to broach this issue because, and I even saw it in response to your thread of people being like, oh, yeah, like, of course you can question the events. Of course you shouldn't take the official story into, like, at heart. They're like, but that's not, like, 9-11 truth. Like, 9-11 truth is, like, the Alex Jones thing where you're like, yeah, the U.S. government did it. And it's just, like, there's zero room for nuance today, which yes. I find extraordinarily disheartening. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the blame can be put at the feet of people like Jones and other sort of sensationalists who, who use the energy from all these questions and curiosity that people had and then to sort of, you know, turn it into a product. Mm-hmm. I think that that stuff 
you know, is largely to blame for people's attitudes about it now. Um, and then not to mention all the snarky sort of debunkers and media, you know, people, especially liberals who mocked, mocked people who questioned it. But I think that just as a curious person, you should be able to look past all that stuff and be like, actually, th this seems odd. This does seem odd. Yeah, a lot of people jump to these conclusions. A lot of the theorizing about what happened, I think, mm -hmm. is the problem. Has been it's, damaging. It's not yeah. enough people are actually asking questions and trying to f pull at different threads of facts that we already know. And that's why I think a website, for example, like History Commons and Paul Thompson's 9-11 timeline is like some of the most important resources available to do this with on the Internet. I mean, I still still keep finding new stuff in there all the time. And... Um, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this sort of the hijacking of the conspiracy movement, conflating things like questioning 9-11 with UFOs or flat earth um, is sort of, you know, even now that's what people think of, uh, of truthers or whatever. Um, but I look, I think you don't have to be a truther or at all to be able to look at aspects of 9-11 and say, yeah, this was really strange. I mean, I was just on... Um, Thaddeus Russell's podcast, and I was really surprised by his openness to the idea, saying that mm -hmm. in his own classes, he would t tell students, he would read sections from Rebuilding America's Defenses. He's not, like, he's not a guy that, you know, knows a whole lot about, you know, the conspiracy culture or whatever. But this just from his own gut reaction. He would read the section about asking for a new Pearl Harbor in the neocon document, Rebuilding America's Defenses, and the students would all sort of in a chorus of questions, like half of the, the, the lesson or the class time was spent with the students asking, well, isn't this like a smoking gun that they had something to do with this? And he'd be like, well, this is not necessarily a smoking gun, but it's, it's that they had every motive in the world to want this. Like that it's not, even if you can't necessarily prove that the neocons had something to do with this, it seems extremely, extremely convenient. And it was like it perfectly landed in their lap a year after they basically asked for it in a public paper. I mean, that, so you have to at least acknowledge that, how lucky they were and how, you know, it does seem reasonable to think, hey, maybe these guys had some foreknowledge or had something to do with this in some way. And, you know, you don't have to be like, this person did it, this person did it, this person did it. Just like that open mindedness of just looking at that for what it is. It's not taken out of context, it's an actual thing that they're hoping will happen so they can get the military budget and, and sort of sweeping legislation that they want. And it happened. Yeah, one thing that really bothers me is when people who are anti-imperialists will say, okay, this is just kind of a distraction because who cares? It happened anyway. The thing is, it's an important deconstruction and demolishing of American exceptionalism in general. Because there is something that still hinges on the fact that like our government wouldn't do that. And it's important to demolish that idea because our government would kill countless millions of people for, you know, to impose hegemony and imperialism around the world. So like it is yeah. important to understand that that shouldn't be an impediment to like accepting that, yeah, they could have had something to do with this. They could have at the very least turned a blind eye exactly. as an anti-imperialist. I'm I'm interested in seeing, you know, the facilitation of these events, how these events are constructed in order to propel war yeah. and all this shit. So that's that's the problem that I have with that narrative, but um and you know, it's important too because we've gotten so far away from what the movement was when we were 
into it, you know, in 2003 and 2004, that like even 9-11 Press for Truth, even talking about the facts in that movie, and it's so cut and dry, like the fact that the commission heads said it was set up to fail, that, mm -hmm. you know, they, they tried to appoint Henry Kissinger, the fact that they didn't even want an investigation until a year, they only allotted a couple million dollars. It was like in every way possible literally set up to fail and for some grand scale cover-up obviously of what really happened and i feel like even if you were to just bring up those facts you would be shut down today and those are like the most like basic incontrovertible facts about what is wrong with what we've been told well it's very interesting you say that yeah i mean i think even just the fact that 9-11 press for truth has the word 9-11 and truth in the title is enough to like turn <laughs> people off even though it doesn't make any reaches. It's extremely grounded. It's largely based off of Paul Thompson's work, who I think is one of the most credible 9-11 researchers. Yeah, it is It is strange to me that people who are anti-imperialist wouldn't want to examine this event, which look at what the effect of it had. It allowed the U.S. empire to buy a lot of time. You could argue that there was sort of a decline after the Cold War. They were trying to figure out, when I say they, I mean like all these ruling class forces, the military industrial complex, this hed these hegemonic believers, they wanted to figure out a way to maintain this hegemony and U.S. empirical reach to continue past the Cold War. And I just find it interesting that, you know, without 9-11, what would they have done? Like this, this so-called talk of the decline of the American empire and that we're sort of pulling back on our responsibilities in the world. I mean, this idea, if this is even happening now, that, that would have actually happened earlier if it wasn't for 9-11. I feel like the American empire in some ways would have had no choice if it wasn't for the event of 9-11, which allowed the whole empire system to buy all this time. I mean, we got away with shit we would have never been able to get away with sending our military to these areas of the world. Without 9-11, I'm sure a lot of other world bodies and countries would have stepped in and said, hey, you, you can't actually do this. There's no reason for you to be here. <laughs> so it created a lot of justifications. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. I think this is an anti-imperialist. This is examined from that perspective, how much time it bought us. I mean, which brings me to the whole point of trauma and collective PTSD which this nation experienced. I mean, I feel like there's no event that's more polarizing than 9-11. Um, JFK was one person. Yeah, it was extremely traumatic. I can't imagine what that was like in the midst of, you know, like, and then subsequently RFK, MLK, Malcolm X, all of these things happening at once. Like, what did that do to a society? But 9-11 is unmatched. Um, and I'm really happy that popular resistance of all websites talked about this and they do kind of this whole breakdown on the psychological trauma explaining why people are so reactionary about this and so incapable of asking questions and really entertaining any of the things that we're talking about. Um, I mean, just witnessing and processing as a society, like an event of this magnitude televised, you know, yeah. where 3000 people are just exploded on live television over and over and over again. Um, I honestly don't know. Has there been any like studies on like what that does to people you know there, like in general just like collective ptsd and i and think there as has popular, been actually but i can't yeah. i can't cite any but no that's really interesting i think we should we should get some of that information for our next episode um if some of those studies and indeed do exist because i'm really fascinated to know i mean obviously it had 
an insane impact. And I actually heard, I think someone did something. I think it was coming more from the like sort of pro truther angle, but it was interviewing a bunch of psychologists. And one of them said something um, that was pretty obvious, I guess, but for a lot of regular people can make the bottom fall out. Like the psychological bottom, the ground that people sort of symbolically stand on fall out from underneath them. And it honestly, on some level, it is just too deeply traumatic to change that amount of grounding. I mean, it almost be like, I think for a lot of regular people being told like and shown some sort of evidence, like if you could do this, that 9-11 was not as it seems to someone in a really easy uh, sort of encapsulated way. It would almost be like telling someone, it would be like uh, Empire Strikes Back when uh, Darth Vader tells Luke Skywalker that he's his father. It would be like that shocking right. to people. So like that's one of the most like over-the-top movie twists of all time. That's how big of a twist it would be in most people's reality. So it's such a huge barrier to cross. I mean, it's far more traumatic than when you finally learn as a child that Santa Claus isn't real, you know? I mean, this or is that something. There's no God. Yeah. No, it's it's severely traumatic. 9/11 was a huge trauma, but trying to untether yourself from the official narrative is also very traumatic. And I think it takes a certain level of openness to want to do that. I think we should understand that you know not everybody has the same openness, and certain people have these psychological limitations. Like I I don't I I can sympathize somewhat for people who can't just cannot process it and can't don't want to go there. I mean, John Stewart once said he actually does think there's some questions about 9-11 that should be asked, but he can't go there. Like he, he can't, he just doesn't go there. I mean, that's a very sort of candid response, I think. And, you know, I used to think when we were going down this rabbit hole a long time ago, I used to just think if everyone just knew, you know, if everyone just like saw 9-11 press for truth, if everyone just knew these questions, you know, and if everyone just knew like the contradictions and then you realize when, you know, especially when I just grew up a little bit, like the truth doesn't matter. I mean, especially in like today's era, like the Trumpian notion of truth is so far removed from what reality is. Like nothing matters because we're so far removed from any sort of like semblance of reality and like a universal Absolutely. notion of truth and everyone has their own truth and everyone, their biases are so strong more now than I think even after 9-11. Yep. Um, but yeah, there it would be really beneficial to like look at some sort of like long-term psychological study on, you know, like empire babies experiencing this collective trauma and then being propelled into like a never-ending war where yeah. you just externalize all of our violence on like the rest of the world and we're just like, we're constantly like re-traumatizing ourselves and victimizing ourselves even though there's like been no terrorism here since. Mm -hmm. It's extremely bizarre. Um, yeah. And I think there's also yeah. sort of this, this is the thing we've touched on before, but sort of this fake woke alternative media. I know the truth narrative that's really pervasive now. And it make gives the appearance that more people are clued into the to real things like the deep state, like Saudi Arabia's mm -hmm. actual influence with the United States or Israel's influence over the United States. But, you know, you see these weird, and, and I think what you're saying is also true that people are, are more holding on to their biases. They're more ingrained now um, than they were even after 9-11. But that's simultaneously happening with sort of this fake, I know the truth alternative media narrative that's created, and I, and I find this sort of bothersome, that's created sort of this narrative that Saudi Arabia has some, you know, has control over what we do. 
Um, and while there is some truth to the idea that there is a lot of influence, especially even just if you're talking about even just economic influence, um, it sort of allowed, I think even now recently, for even people on the left, the farthest they'll go, like people who I associate myself with on the left, anti-imperialists, most of them who have established platforms, the farthest they'll go with 9-11 is saying that Saudi Arabia did this, you know, we funded the Mujahideen. You know, ultimately it goes back to the United States, you know, mistakes or fuck ups or whatever. It's strange to me because one of the things that's, that's I don't know if it's John Gold said this originally, but if you point one finger at Saudi Arabia for 9-11, that points like three fingers back at us. I mean, just the idea that if Saudi Arabia did do 9-11 and, and you somehow think that that makes the U.S. just sort of like, oops, pants down, we can't do anything about it because they're our allies and they have so much influence over us, whoopsie. Like that's essentially, it's almost like taking the U.S.'s responsibility off the hook there. Ultimately, that's sort of what that left blowback narrative does. And I find that troublesome as it kind of takes the U.S. off the hook. If Saudi Arabia did the attacks, that means the U.S. is also complicit in the attacks. I mean, there's no possible way Saudi Arabia could have done that, pulled that off without our intelligence knowing exactly what they were doing. So for starters. That's a really good point. And people should listen to our episode. We'll put this in the timeline right now of, of um, the watchdogs didn't bark. That interview was really fascinating because it kind of just digs more into this um, and the whole like crossing the wires of the CIA and FBI and all this, you know, the narrative of, oh, well, we we were trying to tell each other, but we just couldn't we couldn't get in touch with each other. And whoopsie. Potentially the most important part is just like what we've done since, because I don't want to discount obviously like the war on terror. Um, and it's just important to kind of commemorate the millions of lives that have been destroyed and, you know, countless families who have been affected by this perpetual war on terror narrative while the Amazon was on fire. And while Bolsonaro was very like Trump esque saying, you know, it was the NGOs who set the fires and, you know, meanwhile, Notre Dame is on fire for one second and everyone's just pouring billions of dollars to recover this fucking church. Um, you know, G7 leaders agreed on a $20 million package to fight the Amazon fires. We have literally been spending, Americans as a whole, have been spending $32 million per hour on war since 9-11. Um, about $6 trillion. And that's probably a conservative estimate. So not to mention the millions of lives that have been taken, not to mention the destabilization in the region. and um, Unquantifiable. You know, as as, uh, we, we have no way of knowing the ripple right. effects the, that 9-11, right. our post-9-11 policies have caused. I mean... The refugee crisis and, and like the obsession with 9-11 and terrorism and Islamophobia in this country and looking at, you know, people who are in Afghanistan and that interesting study that came out in 2011 that pulled Afghan men, and I think 92% of them had never heard of what they called the event that foreigners call 9-11. It just shows you how far removed these people who are living under the boot of our empire and also under the reigning of our bombs um, understand about why this is all happening and the excuse that's given to Americans of why this needs to happen, why they, they need to keep getting bombed relentlessly. You mm -hmm. know, fatalities are at an all-time high this year under Trump than ever before, even during the surges in Afghanistan. So that's where we're at. You know, there, there have been multiple 9-11s 
like we talked about before with the Holocaust, like there are many Holocausts, there are many 9-11s. It's not just the pain that's been inflicted on our society. It's the pain that we inflict on countless societies around the world. And it's interesting to even see like what else happened on 9-11, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile. He gave this incredible speech as his country was being bombed and as he knew he was going to die for his revolution. And you know, just reading his speech just like hits me so hard because it's something that you can you can kind of envision happening today. Wow, this happened in 1973. And, you know, here we are still kind of battling these same forces around the world. So, you know, and, and again, that was perpetuated by the U.S. Those deaths are on the hands of this system, this criminal government. So, yep. you know, just broaden your perspective and understand that this is this is an ongoing struggle. And that's why the fight against militarism in the U.S. empire is like the most crucial one that we can really rally behind. Yeah. And even, you know, stories that you think maybe are just not worth focusing on or being activist about like the the, the 9 trials that are coming up or John Walker Lind being released from prison finally. I think those are really important stories too because we need to remember that Guantanamo Bay is, a, is basically an illegal gulag that exists outside mm -hmm. of international law that we did as a show gulag to arrest people off the battlefield for the most part. You know, you can even call it a battlefield. And a lot of pe these people, even the ones who are supposedly the masterminds of 9-11, like Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, had to be waterboarded over 140 times during interrogations. Why did they need to do that? I, I just think even that narrative, that he is somehow the mastermind of 9-11, at this point, needs to be questioned. Because look at his actual transcript from one of the 9-11 hearings years ago, where he admits on paper to over 20 different spectacular terrorist attacks throughout history like he admits to being the mastermind behind them all and i find that ludicrous and not only that abby but your own visit to guantanamo bay where mm -hmm. you already knew what was going on at the time with surveillance of clients uh there was no attorney client privilege they were surveilling everybody and there was basically no privacy so even on that level you couldn't even get a fair trial these are all kangaroo courts. These are not real trials. Why couldn't they just try these people for real? Obviously, that should just make you question that something's very off here about what 9-11 actually was and what they say that it was. Why couldn't they try these people in court? Are they ever going to be tried? It's so disgusting that all these people are just forgotten about. After Obama refused to close down Guantanamo and like that just it just completely became absent. From national discourse anything about guantanamo exactly it's an absolute tragedy yeah yeah thanks obama for that one he wanted to get that new nobel peace prize and i guess it worked you know by announcing something that sounded really good uh, on paper you know that would have been elite at the very least a symbolic gesture that we're not going to have illegal gulags where they do sexual torture on inmates um including rubbing menstrual blood on their face gitmo aside <laughs> Yeah, and people should listen to our Guantanamo episode, too, because that's a real doozy. Just a few days before recording this episode, the Saudi Arabian Aramco oil fields were allegedly attacked by Houthi drones. The Houthis are a rebel group that's fighting against Saudi Arabia in Yemen right now. So what actually happened? Saudi Arabia is saying that this is their 9-11, uh, which is hilarious. You know, this raises a lot of questions. So there's a lot of footage of these oil fields on fire. There's a lot of rhetoric being flung around. 
mostly at first by the Saudi government and the Trump administration, but now the mainstream media is actually ramping things up again, Abby. Um, and I wasn't that scared about this until like just a couple of days ago because that's when I started noticing the mainstream media seeming, and I'm not saying that Trump is an innocent party in this or that he's anti-war, that he doesn't want to go to war, but it seems like they're trying to set up, they're trying to corner him in a weird way. In a similar way that the mainstream media would sort of try to corner Obama on Syria for backing down from the red line stuff. There's sort of a weird dynamic that I just noticed in the last couple of days, and I'll explain in a little bit what I mean. This seems like the type of attack straight from the plot of a neocon fantasy novel or sort of a U.S. policy wonk fantasy novel. So Richard Clark wrote this book called Scorpion's Gate in, uh, I think, 2007, um, and it's about Islamic terrorists seizing a Saudi oil tanker and crashing it like a bomb, like a suicide bombing thing, into a major, U- I think, U.S. city port and ch- causing this giant terrorist attack using oil, right? So what would be the motive for the Houthis to do this? I mean, would it be to hurt the Saudi oil ruling class pocketbook? I mean, if so, Why? We hear, we've heard all this talk that all terrorists want to do is just, like, disrupt everything. Like, they're just like, the, you know, ISIS was going to blow the dam in Iraq just to, like, fuck shit up for everybody. Do you remember that when they were, like, talking about that? Oh, yeah. And it didn't end up happening, oddly enough. But they were talking about that as if it was just going to be, like, they don't give a shit about, like, any of the crops or anything. They're just, like, going to blow the fucking dam and kill everybody because that's how crazy ISIS is. So would this actually help the Houthis' efforts in Yemen or, like, their cause to disrupt the international oil supply or create a blip in the economy for a day of the stock market. So if this is, and then, and, and so my, the other thinking that I have is, uh, I, I talk about, um, criticizing people who say everything is a false flag, but when it comes to things that can bring us to war with Iran, I think it's smart to question literally everything. I think it, it actually is wise in that case to question every single thing we're being shown. So if this actual attack was somehow a false flag, who is it designed to impact? Regular people do not give a fuck about Saudi oil. The only way that impacts regular people is through gas prices, which most Americans aren't going to directly link to this event anyways. I mean, they'll just, you know, they'll just think, oh, man, the gas prices are so high because the Middle East is fucking shit right now or whatever. Like they won't connect it to this specific thing. So who could an attack like this be designed to sway in some fashion? It makes my mind go to the idea that this seems to be, you know, an attack on like an oil supply, like Saudi oil supply. The ruling classes and the people who invest in Aramco and Saudi oil, people who invest in the global energy market will be upset by this and could be swayed by this somehow. So why try to fear monger? I guess what I'm saying is this could be sort of a new style of false flag to use a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up approach. So why try to fearmonger the the whole public when you can actually fearmonger and just scare the ruling class into going along with something stupid, like a war, like a war with Iran? Um, so I don't know. What do you have to say about that or any of the things? So was the media? So you're saying that the media was like all up in arms about this and and kind of replaying like they not have at first. every time that Saudi oil tankers have been hit because this is like literally like the f- fucking fifth time that this has happened in like the last four months which is so weird well this is not tankers these aren't tankers this is something that actually i think happened on saudi territory 
which makes it a lot more inflammatory from like a military perspective, like a like a um, you know sovereign state perspective. This wasn't like a tanker out in the water. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they actually came in. Whatever this was, it came into Saudi territory and bombed actual oil fields. So I just wanted to, to make sure people know that. So Mike Pompeo and Brian Hook, um, since we haven't really talked about, and we might have to wait to the next episode, but we haven't talked about the fact that John Bolton actually got fired and or resigned um, a few days ago. Around the same time this is all happening, or it might have been because we don't know what ha- why it happened, but Trump was actually trying to have negotiations with the Taliban at Camp David, apparently. Um, and that might have had something to do with it. But back to Saudi Arabia, they're now basically bringing out to these press conferences Brian Hook and Mike Pompeo. Brian Hook is a former Bush official, neocon, who's on this Iran regime change team that Mike Pompeo has put together. Um, and Trump is sort of contradicting things that they're saying in his own press conferences. And what the press did at first is they were sort of making Trump seem like he was being really bellicose and like overly trying to be tough guy saying we're locked and loaded. Cause that's what he first said in a tweet after this attack. Oh my God. So the media was like mocking him for that. And then they were simultaneously also going after him and saying how wrong it was for him to like fire Bolton. They were also criticizing Trump apparently for trying to negotiate with the Taliban. So of course, again, the media is attacking him for the wrong reasons. They're going after him from the right on some of these foreign policy issues. What happened was once Trump started to sort of pull back some of his rhetoric, Abby, this is the weird part. So once he started to like get cold feet and say like he doesn't want to go to war with Iran, he just said this, I think, today, the media started like assailing him and saying like, well, what? You said you were locked and loaded like the other day, and then you said you were going to do direct talks with the Iranian government, and now that you say that's fake news, it's very odd what they're doing. And and they're basically now, the media is now taking and running with, this is what's crazy, is in between all this, just a few days ago this materialized in CNN and CBS and all these other news outlets, is they're saying that in addition to the drones that there were actual cruise missiles literally launched from an Iranian military base directly at Saudi Arabia. And they're getting this. Yes. They're getting this all from an anonymous U S intelligence official. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Is it just me or is the mainstream media and establishment absolutely determined to turn Iran into the de facto world's biggest state sponsor of terror? They seem just as determined to do that as the Trump administration is. This is not just like a Trump thing. So this is like where the mainstream media and Trump sort of conjoin together. But Trump is like going back and forth and not, you know, like we were saying on this podcast appearance we did yesterday. It seems like Trump wants to have it both ways. He wants to act really tough guy and aggressive, but he also wants to get sort of that cold feet, war weary voting block, too. He wants both at the same time. Isn't it interesting that he's doing this after Bolton's out of the picture? So like before when he would do this, when all of these escalations would happen in the past, we would kind of speculate on the same thing. Like, okay, is Bolt, you know, people were like, oh, Bolton's the one who wants war. Trump's reining him in every time Trump would kind of speak out of both sides of his mouth. But now it should be pretty clear pretty crystallized to me that Bolton has nothing to do with this, that this is the way Trump is going to operate. Yeah. Oh, the speaking outside both of his mouth thing is definitely is definitely coming from Trump. Absolutely. I mean, I think it might change the character of it 
But we'll have mm-hmm. to see. But sorry, I interrupted you. So keep going. No, it's fine. I was just going to say that, first of all, I don't believe what the U.S. government says about this attack, just like I don't believe what they've said about all of these other tankers getting attacked in the past couple months. Apparently, Houthi rebels have claimed responsibility for for the attacks, but the fact that they're trying to link this to Iran is preposterous. I mean, Iran doesn't puppeteer the Houthi rebels. Well, the, you know what I mean? Like, well, Iran exactly. is like, has nothing, Iran has nothing to do with this. And the fact that, you know, if the Houthi rebels did drone bomb Saudi Arabian oil, uh, an oil field, that's kind of awesome. Well, I mean, they've been yeah. like, like finally, I mean, they finally, they did a counterstrike on Saudi Arabia. They've been waging war in Yemen since 2015, brutalizing um, Yemenis and like a hundred thousand people have been killed. And it's on the brink of millions of people are on the brink of starving to death, deliberate atrocities on weddings, funerals, buses. So why is the world up in arms about this? Why not the actual atrocities being enacted by Saudi Arabia on a daily basis in Yemen with U.S. tax dollars? Very strange. Like, who gives a shit? So let's say all of this is real in the way that they're laying it out. Like, who cares? Exactly. I mean, even if every, you take everything at face value, it doesn't seem to be enough to validate. It's not going to create a public response to want to go to war with Iran. It's just not. So I, that's what I wonder if all these are done to hurt the pocketbooks of all these sort of ruling class oligarchs or people where they'll want to go to war with Iran. And then they'll, as a result, try to do, come up with some other propaganda campaign to get us to war with Iran. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like these different aspects of this machinery, you know, could be triggered by this, but not direct. It's not going to directly make anybody want to go to war with Iran, even like total Trump, you know, MAGA, MAGA people. They're not going to care. Do you think they're going to care? No, not at all. Yeah. So you have to wonder, you know, if it's real, if it's if we're taking it at all face value, I mean, that's who it's going to hurt. And if it's not real, if it's some kind of staged event or false flag kind of a situation, then that's 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 interesting in and of itself that it's also not something designed to outrage the public. So both I mean both things are, I, I think are worth considering. Um, but so before Bolton was fired, Trump was talking about having talks with the Iranian government uh, with no preconditions. There was all this talk about the Houthi rebels being directed directly by Iran. This does just seem like we're on some kind of roller coaster that goes up and down. It's like, what is actually mm-hmm. happening here? Who is riding the ship? Is Trump just changing his mind from one day to the next? Is I mean, it is really confusing still. I don't think Bolton leaving is going to make Trump not want to go to war ever again. But I do, I mean, I do wonder what kind of effect it's having. I mean, I one other outcome of this, Abby, that I was thinking of that could be on the horizon um, which is really scary also, is some kind of war between Saudi Arabia and Iran that won't at first oh draw God. the U.S. directly into conflict, but could involve other parties eventually, like Russia, of course, other countries like China. So, I mean, basically what I'm alluding China. to is... Yeah, basically what I'm China. alluding to, people, is a World War Three scenario, even if the U.S. doesn't get involved at first. This is a scary situation developing there seems to be a narrative coming out from U.S. officials from the mainstream media being leaked through the mainstream media that it's Iranian government directly launched this attack from an Iranian military base. That's the part I didn't mention earlier specifically, is that CBS News reported today 
that the United States has identified the exact locations in Iran from which a combination of more than 20 drones and cruise missiles were launched against Saudi oil facilities over the weekend, a senior U.S. official told CBS News national security correspondent David Martin on Tuesday. The official said the locations are in the southern Iran at the northern end of the Persian Gulf. So that's very inflammatory rhetoric to be putting out, that Iran somehow launched a military attack on Saudi Arabian soil. That's that's scary that that's being put out. Not scary that that's what happened because I don't I don't necessarily believe that's what happened, but that's scary that they're putting that out. I think, and that we should all pay attention to that when that kind of rhetoric gets out there. It's designed to escalate shit. This whole incident um, not only has flavors of neocon policymaker, uh, like terror fiction fantasy novels about terrorists, you know, taking out um, oil supplies, but this also harkens back to one of the first major terror attacks that bin Laden was blamed for. Um, it was on the Saudi Kobar Towers in the 1990s. I think around, uh, I want to say it was 20 people that died. It was a truck bomb attack. It was almost 500 injuries. And uh, there have been multiple parties that have been blamed for this attack. And what was interesting and noteworthy about it is Bin Laden is a Saudi citizen. He comes from a rich Saudi family. And if this was a Bin Laden attack, he attacked as part of the Saudi government, essentially. And also it was located near an Aramco oil facility. Um, so they thought that the target might have also been that as well. But the U.S. government, some neocons in the U.S. government, and the Saudi government were trying to collaborate to blame Iran and only Hezbollah for the attack. But the propaganda that they were trying to put out wasn't totally effective, as history has shown that bin Laden was probably behind the attack, and that some U.S. intel actually stood by the, that assertion, even while neocons and the Saudi government were trying to paint it as Iran as the attacker. So this brings up sort of the question of, if Saudi Arabia is such a big exporter of terror, and bin Laden comes from there, and he attacked a Saudi facility back in the 1990s. Why is that never happening now? Like, why does Saudi Arabia seem so clean in terms of getting any of their own blowback from this, all this quote-unquote Wahhabism and terrorism they're exporting? So it does, it does bring up an interesting question, which is how does, you know, all this Wahhabism just happen all over that they're apparently exporting but never comes by, back to bite them or their government? Um, it's... It's a, it's a question, I think, worth asking. And in this case, um, I don't think we could put anything past the Saudi government and whoever might have been behind this. I mean, I, I really think that we need to be extremely skeptical about whether it's the Houthis, the Iranian government, or anyone outside of Saudi Arabia. It could have actually been a Saudi Arabian group. I don't know. Uh, we I mean, we simply need, you know, hard evidence. And even if there is hard evidence that the Houthis did this, it's still absolutely not a reason to attack Iran, um, and there really are no reasons to attack Iran. Uh, there is no legitimate reason whatsoever um, in any real circumstance. So uh, I guess that's where I'll leave it with that. It is really interesting that there hasn't been more blowback within Saudi Arabia considering it borders Iraq. Uh, we did a whole report on Saudi Arabia for Empire Files, and it's just interesting also like the internal suppression of activism. Um, like, cause they had their own little mini Arab spring within Saudi and they 
completely like just assassinated all of the protest leaders. I mean, we hear that all the time that there's like people who literally just are peacefully protesting and then they get beheaded <laughs> for that. Um, so yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know why that is. Um, like whatever the borders like, how militarized is it? Like how is it possible that ISIS hasn't bled into Saudi from Iraq at all? Like very interesting. Or how even the, the ISIS stronghold that was apparently on the border of Syria, pretty much bordering Israel, never fucked with like the IDF. Rarely ever. I mean, like, I don't even right. think there's one instance of ISIS shooting at or launching any kind of attack on Israelis. Um, and that's also interesting. All of this goes along with kind of um, pontificating about Bolton's role and lack thereof, because now Bolton is out of the White House, Robbie. I mean, John Bolton is one of the most genocidal war criminal maniacs um, that's ever served. He was in the Bush administration. He was a lead architect of the Iraq war. He's been in and out of think tanks ever since. And then he was back in full swing and, you know, pioneering Trump's foreign policy. And somehow throughout that entire time, people were still offering apologies for Trump, even though he hired Bolton himself to carry out the criminal coup in Venezuela the escalation with Iran and all this other stuff, like people were still just apologizing for him, saying it's really Bolton. Well, he hired Bolton, and then he fired Bolton. Um, and then, of course, everyone was patting him on the back for that. And, and even Ezra Klein, like absolute shit takes from neoliberals and some leftists alike, um, and, of course, the conservative grifters like Tucker Carlsonites that were saying, look, Trump doesn't really want war, see? Bolton's out, Robbie. We were right all along. This is a shining moment for the Trump administration. He really wants peace. Yeah, it's really frustrating to watch uh, the way people react to these kinds of things. Um, it was, you know, th there was a frustrating narrative while Bolton was in office that Trump had him on some kind of short leash as like an attack dog that was, you know, only playing bad cop while Trump was playing the good cop and it was used as a negotiating tactic. Um, there was all these narratives coming out that ultimately made Trump look like smart and strategic for hiring John Bolton and not like a warmonger and like someone who had been completely, you know, taken for a ride by the neocons. Um, but and so it was confusing to analyze it even while he was in, because even the left during that time period wasn't being particularly uh, they weren't focusing necessarily on what Trump wanted to do, just what John Bolton might have been trying to do or what Pompeo was trying to do. So now that Bolton is gone, we have Trump sort of trying to puff his chest out and actually saying at a press conference that actually, no, Bolton wasn't the one who wanted to go to war all the time, that he was holding me back, uh, that I wanted to go further in Venezuela and Cuba, and he held me back, he was saying. So this is how Trump wants to behave after he's firing Bolton. You would think if Trump was smart and strategic, he would understand that he could use this firing as a way to like actually come out and say, um, I do want to you know, remove all the troops. I do want to do this. I fired John Bolton because um, he was too right. much of a hawk. Um, I, I want peace. Uh, but Trump, as we've been talking about lately, seems to want it both ways. He can't just, just stay on one track. He's so like ADD or an ego driven about this that he wants to simultaneously seem like he's tougher than Bolton and that also he somehow, uh, that Bolton was like too 
tough for him. He blamed Bolton for derailing the North Korea talks, which is interesting. Um, because at the time, uh, you know, it seemed weird that Bolton was going out there and saying that it's going to be like Libya, that the North Korean regime will turn into <laughs> Libya. And Trump actually specifically mentioned that in a press conference of what, how he didn't like that. And that helped derail the talks. So Trump has already been really like shitting on his own talks, blaming Bolton for them disintegrating. Um, and that's interesting, too. I mean, but does Trump really want peace with North Korea? Um, does he just want the photo op? Again, it's hard to tell if there's anything beyond just sort of his own ego that he's actually trying to do. Uh, you know, I'm sure on some level Trump doesn't want to go to war because he'll be blamed for it if it goes badly. Um, if the Venezuela thing was able to be something that he could have gone in quick and done really fast and hard and got out there with no consequences to us, no public fallout, he obviously would have done it. Um, there is something, uh, you know, to think Trump is a peacemaker and that we should breathe a sigh of relief because John Bolton is out of office, I think is extremely, extremely naive. We've seen time and time again what happens Um presidents are driven into war well not driven into war they decide to go to war on completely false reasons all the time regardless of who's president trump you know is different from other presidents his rhetoric is different he knows how to tap into that anti-war sentiment just like obama did when he was running but ultimately i think that it is just all rhetoric and he's a con man um he's a different style of con man than obama than previous presidents but he's a con man in the sense that he knows actually how to throw all these little f trial balloons out there. And he knows, you know, he, he seems to think that he can be both a present himself as a peacemaker, you know, anti-war and also extremely tough and willing to go to war. And as he said on Twitter a few days ago, locked and loaded and ready to go. You know, I don't think Bolton was the one who told him that fire and fury was going to rain down on North Korea. Those were the type of words that he chose to use. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think he's still, it's not that he's a mystery or an enigma. I think he's literally a walking contradiction at this point. And that's why we've seen, it's not because the neocons are forcing his hand or battering him. That's why we've seen him announce casually, uh, that he was going to pull all the troops out from Syria and Afghanistan. And then the next day renege on it. It's because he's not thinking these things through, um, with with uh you know with any serious earnest he is just sort of casually on a whim deciding maybe this will make me look good if i do this you know why are we in afghanistan still let's get all the troops out and then the next day he decides against you know against it because he got some new intel so that's what i think might be happening here and i don't think bolton being out is going to change much actually i really don't we've we're already seen another escalation for an iranian war potentially with the United States based on the Saudi oil attack and Bolton's not even in. So, and again, he's had power outside of administrations pretty much for his whole career. He was responsible for super PACs that raised millions of dollars to try to destroy the Iran deal, to try to thwart it before it was even signed. And he's actually helped largely erode the confidence in the deal. He's, he's been you know, a lot of people don't give enough credit for helping destroy that after the fact. He created a lot of the PR necessary to get that removed and the impetus to get Trump to um, revoke that. So, you know, it wasn't John Bolton whispering in his ear in the administration that did that. It was the climate that John Bolton helped create with his super PACs after being out in and out of think tanks that helped create that. 
And also, we can't forget, John Bolton was the founding director of the project for the New American Century with Bill Kristol, with Robert Kagan. A lot of people, even on the left, like to say now, you know, he's not a neocon. He's different. He's just a hawk. You know, Trump is still (laughs) not in bed with the neocons because John Bolton isn't a literal neocon. He's different. He's just a straight up militarist. He just wants to kill people. He doesn't want the humanitarian stuff. But look, he was in bed with Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan and all these regular textbook neocons who play the humanitarian game. So... I don't know why people make such an effort to try to separate him. I think they're struggling to some degree with the cognitive dissonance of still holding on to some belief that Trump is somehow in opposition to the whole neocon system in D.C. So they need to like separate John Bolton from the paradigm of neoconservatism. And I think that's kind of what's happening. But in reality, these Foundation for Defense of Democracy neocons who are in the Trump and men, they're probably not like those typical old school neocons either. Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol stopped talking about Iranian regime change around the Obama administration. Their rebranding goes long back. These, uh, some of these other neocons haven't rebranded. They're still very ho- openly hawkish. So I think that's the main difference. It's just a PR rebranding thing most, for the most part. Wow. I mean, that was a perfect... Uh, summary, and I feel like I can't really add anything to that. Um, I mean, I feel like we should wrap it up, but I'll just say one last thing is that when Obama had a lot of anti-interventionist rhetoric during his campaign, the second he got in, we realized it was a farce. But for some reason, this con man, we still kind of resurrect his his rhetoric from the campaign trail. I I don't understand why we are why why we continue to give him credit when literally he is a con man. It doesn't matter what he said on the campaign trail. You can look at also the genocidal, maniacal things that he said about bombing people, bombing Iranian ships, um, taking out terrorists, families. So it's like, I mean, what rhetoric do you really want to lay on? Because it's not good, no matter which way you slice it. So, And, and let's make it very clear. His argument against war, the rhetoric that he's used all throughout the campaign and even now, is not based in a moral framework. It's based on why are we wasting these resources? Why are we helping these people over there? It sort of comes from a selfish, self-centered place. It needs to come from a perspective of morality. It's almost like ascribing some kind of moral reason for not wanting to go to war to Trump. It's not there at all. Um, it's clear that it's not there. He's chosen not to talk about any aspect of war from a perspective of humanity or morality. Or even like In justice. Fact, Really? Yeah. In fact, he's doubled civilian casualties. We can't forget that. And it's just so funny that people continue to like latch onto the rhetoric. As you mentioned, he'll say one thing one day about, oh, I want to remove the troops and then he won't do it. But people will never remember that he didn't do it. They'll just be like, well, Trump said this, like Trump doesn't want war. Um, forgetting the fact that he's actually doubled troops in many places that he, you know, he doubled bombings, increased drone strikes and doubled civilian casualties by boasting about letting the gloves off of the generals. So it's it's kind of sad. It kind of goes back to our discussion about 9-11. It's like n- the truth doesn't matter anymore. Reality doesn't matter anymore. Everyone is going to believe whatever their preconceived notions about the world, whatever conventional wisdom makes them feel more at ease with this fucked up society that we live in and their empire baby syndrome. So whatever validates their perspective they'll just keep reinforcing even though it does not have any sort of roots whatsoever in reality um and i feel like i'm spinning my wheels sometimes because i'm just constantly like it's not that hard to figure out 
you know, in terms of what he's really doing abroad yeah. and, and how he's expanding the empire, but it just seems really hard um, to synchronize these thoughts amidst uh, progressives, amidst just academics. Um, very strange. Um, to what you're saying about uh, why people still latch on to Trump's rhetoric and want to believe, as I think that the bar is extremely low to people now. People are desperate. And because Trump hasn't launched any new full-scale war like Libya, like Obama did in Libya, you know, like a bombing campaign to oust Gaddafi, people will, it's like all this other stuff, all these other ongoing bombing campaigns in Niger and Somalia, in Syria, etc. These are all normalized Mm-hmm. Because Trump mm-hmm. merely inherited these and like and increased the amount of bombing drastically because he didn't start them himself. People, that's the bar where the bar is for people. And I find that interesting because Trump has only been in office. Uh, I, how long has it been now? Three years? And uh, two and a half, three years almost. Yeah. This is not over yet. I think it's likely he will win a second term unless he decides to throw in the towel I, th- I still oddly think he might decide that he's sick of being president. Still have this weird inkling that that's really the only way he's not going to win is if he sort of sabotages it himself. If you look back to what Obama did in his first term, bombing Libya, the drone strikes, Trump would have done all those things. In fact, Trump was pro the bombing of Libya. Trump got very upset when he wasn't president back when Obama withdrew troops from Iraq. Um, Trump was like attacking Obama from the right on his foreign policy. So to say that Trump wouldn't have done the things that Obama did, like I saw a Michael Tracy tweet saying by the time Obama was, you know, three years into his presidency, he'd already done this X, Y, and Z. And I, and I re- responded to each thing and I said, well, Trump would have bombed Libya had the opportunity arisen around, you know, if, if Trump was president during that time period. And do you think that Trump with his ego, would have backed down from the red line threat that Obama made? That's actually an interesting question to ponder because Trump was actually also attacking Obama for being a wimp during that time period, for not sticking to the red line threat in Syria and actually attacking the Assad regime as a response to the alleged chemical weapons attack. So I think we really need to really assess this for what it really is. And I think we're really actually lucky. Luck is the only reason why we haven't launched some kind of new full-scale attack. And the fact that it seems to be Iran is on the table right now and it keeps coming up and it's escalating and it, and it dies down, but then it escalates again to this really heated point is extremely worrisome. And we can't forget that and put that out of mind just because John Bolton is fired or just because Trump says things that we like to hear about war sometimes. We can't forget the real shit that's happening. That's really scary. All of the fires that the U.S. has like put around the world, um, there is going to be some sort of blowback at some point. All of this, even if there isn't some like huge thing, I mean, there's there's multiple things that could actually escalate into a war um, just because of the precarious footing that the U.S. has put itself in from being so aggressive in the region. So a lot of things could lead us into war. I think you're absolutely right that we're lucky um, that there hasn't been a war. But yeah, I mean, Trump has really made clear that his bloodlust exceeds Bolton's to clear it up for everyone who's confused. And he said his views on Venezuela and especially Cuba are far stronger. So I don't know what that means for the future. Maybe more genocidal sanctions that kill tens of thousands of more Venezuelans as a punishment for not cowering 
and not just letting their country be fucking invaded by the U.S. military. But, I mean, it's just really sad that still berating Cuba and, and penalizing them for simply living a different way of life. So I don't know what's going to happen with those countries. It's pretty clear that Trump has not stopped. So yeah, I don't understand how people can wish away what happened in Venezuela. And it's a miracle that that coup was not successful. So it's just really absurd. These narratives are very dumb and they're easy to just completely uh, expose. But here we are. Yeah, well, I mean, just want to reiterate to people, uh, it is. I think it is actually really naive to be relieved that Bolton is gone. Um, Trump was already on a very hawkish trajectory towards Iran, um, towards you know regions of South America. This is not going to go away simply because one guy leaves the administration. These are forces that eclipse people, individuals, even individual think tanks or governments that are constantly pushing for war. And we can't forget that. Just because Trump is in office and, yeah, he says some shit that sounds good sometimes. Um, th these are overwhelming forces that will keep pushing and pushing and pushing for this. And there is something afoot right now about trying to go to war with Iran and just be very, very careful uh, about what you, you know, don't let your guard down right now about what's going on. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Media Roots Radio. Um, remember, we have new tiers with rewards on our Patreon, patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. Thank you so much for listening, you guys, and, and let us know what you think, as always, on the SoundCloud timeline. Sorry we didn't do more debate um, analysis. It just seemed like it just started to bleed into each other, and everything was just so um, insufferable, the way that people just, I mean, literally, like, 99% of the last couple debates have just been, like, anecdotal bullshit. Um, without even discussing any facts at all. So it's been bizarre, frankly, and we really haven't had the stomach to really kind of break it down. But I, I do have a lot to say about Elizabeth Warren. I've been doing a shitload of research on her. So we will save that for the next episode. But um, yeah, pretty fascinating stuff, how, how much of a fraud she really is. So stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please consider donating to us and follow us on Media Roots and, and our personal Twitters. Yeah, check out check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Biz.